This is the California Slap Law Podcast, episode 14. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. I've been acting for a long time. Acting has been very good to me. But after listening to Aaron Morris, I think being a lawyer would have been much more fun. It certainly can be fun. Welcome to the 14th episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. We are a boutique firm with a primary emphasis on First Amendment law and media law, defamation, and of course, anti-slap motions. If we can be of assistance with anything having to do with free speech, defamation, or anti-slap motions, please feel free to call at 714-954-0700. That's 714-954-0700. Or email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. Not the bottom law firm. Oh, no, 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 no. You wouldn't want the bottom law firm. You want the top law firm. Morris at toplawfirm.com. Today we're going to take a look at the interplay between the Communications Decency Act and anti-slap motions. The topic came up because of another anti-slap victory we enjoyed this week at Morrison Stone. The anti-slap motion we brought on behalf of our client had nothing to do with the Communications Decency Act, but the plaintiff was also suing Yelp and Ripoff Report in the same action, and they both disposed of the action with anti-slap motions based on the Communications Decency Act. Now, I would have thought this had been put to bed a long time ago, but I still see attorneys suing websites for content posted by third parties, so I thought we'd discuss that a little. The case I'm going to talk about is in front of Judge Jeffrey Glass in the Orange County Superior Court. Now, Judge Glass is one of my favorite judges in Orange County. Some attorneys aren't particularly enamored with him, but I think it's only because he's very precise and demanding. He really enjoys the intellectual aspects of litigation, and he takes you through your argument using the Socratic method. It's kind of like being back in law school. In one case I had in front of Judge Glass, I represented a defendant who was being sued for a spam filter he'd created. This is actually a very informative story because it involves a part of the Communications Decency Act that I I bet you're probably not aware of. My client was the inventor of a very popular spam filter, and that spam filter was used by some major internet service providers such as AT&T. Now, for reasons not yet important to the story, the spam filter decided that emails from a particular company were spam, and so it was it was filtering all these emails. Let's call that company Acme. So Acme was hopping mad that its emails were being blocked by my client's spam filter and sued him under a number of legal theories such as interference with business and negligence. They actually sued him for defamation, saying that to claim that his emails were uh, spam was defamatory. So I was retained a couple of weeks before the trial. I looked at the complaint and realized that this was a case that clearly should have been disposed of with some type of motion because spam filters are specifically covered under the Communications Decency Act. Here's what the CDA says about spam filters. Section 230C2 provides that, quote, No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Those last few words were the key to this case. 
You are protected under the CDA if the spam filter you create is designed to filter harassing or otherwise objectionable material. When a spammer sends out spam, he is soon identified as a spammer and the spam filters jump in and block emails coming from that spammer's IP address. So what do you do if you're a spammer and your spam is being blocked? You really want to get your spam out there, but they're on to you. They know your IP address, so your IP address is being blocked. Well, you send your spammy email from a different IP address. You look for what is called an open relay. That's an email system that hasn't been locked down properly. A spammer can hijack the open relay and route the spam through that system and thereby fool the spam filters who see the email is coming from a different IP address. So my client's spam filter was so successful specifically because it checked for open relays. When an email came through the filter, it would ping the relay to see if it was open, and if it was, the spam filter would flag the email as spam. It was a great system because it also helped to close the open relays. It basically took away the tools of the spammers. If a legitimate company all of a sudden found all of its email messages were being blocked by the spam filter due to an open relay, all it had to do was fix the open relay. It wasn't, wasn't a permanent problem. So my client's filter not only blocked spam, but it helped to lock down any open relays, thereby frustrating the nefarious activities of the spammers. Now here is the key to the case. Anyone using the filter could turn off that feature. So it was the end user who decided whether or not to block emails on that basis, whether or not to block emails that were coming from an open server. So I was retained just before trial to take over the case. And as I said, I could see right away that prior counsel really should have brought a dispositive motion based on the CDA. So I looked into setting a motion, but the soonest I could get a hearing date was the second day of trial. So this is where it gets pretty entertaining. It was way too late to bring a motion for summary judgment, so I decided to bring a motion for judgment on the pleadings. Acme's counsel was outraged that I would schedule a motion for judgment on the pleadings for the second day of trial, and in his opposition questioned the legitimacy of my birth and whether I had ever actually attended law school. He even asked for sanctions for my outrageous motion. So then we showed up for trial, and, and before I could even bring it up, Judge Glass mentions that he's seen my motion for judgment on the pleadings. He said, I think that brings up a pretty interesting issue, your motion for judgment on the pleadings, but I think it's going to require evidence. So I'm not going to grant your motion. Instead, I'm going to do a bifurcated trial. I'm going to have a trial on the issue of whether this spam filter falls under the CDA. Now, Acme had requested a jury, but Judge Glass decided that he would first hold a bench trial on the issue of whether it falls under the CDA, because that's a legal issue. So he's going to decide that before he brings in the jury. So the trial starts out like a trial, with plaintiff's counsel putting his client on the stand, but the so-called trial soon turns into a debate. Remember, the CDA states that a defendant is protected from claims arising from a spam filter so long as the defendant acted in good faith to block material that is obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Remember also that Judge Glass likes to employ the Socratic method of argument. So the plaintiff's argument was that the CDA does protect spam filters, but only if they are content-based. Acme argued that my client's spam filter was not blocking Acme's emails based on any particular content. It was just blocking the emails because they came from an open relay. Since the filter was not content-based, it enjoyed no protections. I, alternatively, argued that there was no such requirement in the CDA. The CDA protects a spam filter that blocks harassing or otherwise objectionable content. I use the example of emails from Nigeria. I get a lot of spam from Nigeria. I find all of the spam I get from Nigeria to be objectionable. I could decide that I'm very unlikely to ever receive a legitimate email from Nigeria and decide to block all messages that come from that country. 
Are you saying that the CDA would not protect a spam filter provider who gives me the ability to block emails from Nigeria? Am I, am I mandated to receive emails from Nigeria even if I don't want to? Well, plaintiff's counsel responded that the answer is yes. A spam filter that blocks emails on any criteria other than content would not be protected under the CDA. So Judge Glass, who had been listening patiently, weighs in with what we now call the fluffy bunny speech. Judge Glass posited the question, well, what type of content would it have to be to be protected under the CDA? Plaintiff's counsel said it would need to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, or excessively violent, and ignored the harassing or otherwise objectionable language. So Judge Glass responded, what if I don't like fluffy bunnies? I find references to fluffy bunnies to be highly objectionable, and I want a spam filter that will block any references to fluffy bunnies. Would the CDA protect a filter that screens out emails about fluffy bunnies? Now, by this point, plaintiff's counsel no doubt knew he'd painted himself into a corner, but he had to be consistent. So he argued that a fluffy bunny filter would not be protected because that is not the sort of offensive content that was contemplated by the CDA. The filter could, for example, filter pornographic images, but it could not filter discussions of fluffy bunnies because fluffy bunnies are not objectionably offensive. So under the CDA, the protection is defined by what's being filtered, Judge Glass asked. Plaintiff's counsel could only answer yes. Judge Glass held that could not have been the intent of the CDA and entered judgment in favor of my client. That judgment was upheld on appeal. The protection for spam filters provided by the CDA is not content-based. That would be an unworkable standard. Acme's argument on appeal was very emotional. Acme asked, well, what if Al-Qaeda decided to block emails from the CIA? And and what if neo-Nazi organizations decided to block emails from Jewish organizations? The problem with that argument is it ultimately comes down to a claim that the end user must receive all emails, whether or not they want to, and only emails that are objectionable by some unknown standard can be blocked. Thankfully, that argument did not prevail. So that was one of my prior experiences with Judge Glass. Let's get back to the anti-slap motion we just won on Friday, which also involves the CDA. The plaintiff in this case is an attorney, and she has completely dug herself into a hole with this case. It's been a fun case, but sad at the same time, because the complaint was so clearly a slap, it never should have been filed, and the attorney is going to end up owing hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney's fees to the defendants if she continues to pursue this case through appeal. But there are some good takeaways from the case. Plaintiff handles a very emotional area of the law. Now, I don't want to embarrass plaintiff as I discuss her case, so let's change the facts a little, and let's say that she handles child custody cases. That's, that's kind of analogous to what she really does. She has that type of practice where emotions run really high, and her clients will be devastated if she does not succeed in the case. So now picture that there's a Facebook page devoted to child custody cases where parents go on and discuss their cases. A discussion of this attorney was started on Facebook, and a number of people didn't have very good things to say about this particular attorney. That criticism ultimately spread out beyond Facebook, and some posted reviews on Ripoff Report and Yelp. Well, the attorney takes exception to all this criticism, so she sues six individuals for the things they posted, as well as Yelp and Ripoff Report. I just couldn't believe it when I read the complaint. I don't think the attorney was familiar with the CDA. And the lesson, once again, is you've got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. Even assuming the attorney knew nothing about the CDA and named Yelp and Ripoff Report in error, then she needed to fold her cards and dismiss them from the case rather than to fight the inevitable anti-slap motions. But fight she did. She tried to make the standard argument that websites like Yelp and Ripoff Report encourage defamatory speech and indeed make money from defamatory comments. 
especially in the case of Ripoff Report, where positive comments are not even permitted, she argued that such a site is in essence creating the content. Further, once a defamatory review is posted, Ripoff Report won't let the person who posted it take it down. So the argument is that Ripoff Report encourages defamatory postings to the point of rejecting anything that is positive and then won't take down those defamatory postings. It is therefore, in essence, the creator of the content, so the argument goes. This argument has been rejected repeatedly in cases such as Global Royalties Limited versus Eccentric Ventures. Eccentric Ventures is the actual business entity behind Ripoff Report. In global royalties, just as the attorney did in this case, the plaintiff argued that Ripoff Report makes its money from what it calls a corporate advocacy program. It intentionally solicits negative and defamatory reviews so that companies have to pay to participate in the corporate advocacy program. In the case of global royalties, the plaintiff argued that its case was different than all the others that had failed before because in the case of global royalties, the person who had posted the review was demanding its removal. Since Ripoff Report was refusing to remove the comments that had been posted by a third party, it was, in essence, making the decision to post the information. It was no longer the third party that had posted the information. Well, that argument never succeeded because, while it has some intellectual appeal, the simple fact is that there's no takedown provision in the CDA. By way of comparison, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, DMCA, contains a specific takedown provision in the case of images posted by others that violate copyright. The court reasoned that Congress knows how to draft a takedown provision, so if it wanted a takedown provision in the CDA, it would have included one. Now, there is one tiny exception to this rule that that could conceivably come up in your practice, so you might want to take note of this. It's not really an exception, but rather a very narrow circumstance where the content created by a third party does not fall under the CDA. This arises from the case of Batzel v. Smith. Batzel, B-A-T-Z-E-L. Batzel v. Smith. Uh, An individual sent a defamatory letter to an organization, and that organization liked the letter so much that it posted it on its website. The person who was the subject of the defamatory letter sued. Ha ha ha, the organization retorted, it's content from a third party, so we're protected by the CDA. No, 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 said the court. The letter was to you, but there was no indication that it was intended for publication on your website. You posted the letter, so you are responsible. So log that little factoid in your brain in case it comes up in your practice. A website is protected under the CDA for content from a third party, but only if that third party intended that the information would be posted on the website. Thus ends our discussion of the Communications Decency Act, but not our discussion of my victorious anti-slap motion. Judge Glass did something that made infinite sense, but I'm, I'm sure it really worked against the plaintiff. My client was the last of the party. She was the last defendant served with the complaint long after the others, and she responded with a motion to quash. The judge denied her motion to quash, and then she hired me. The case was assigned to a not-so-great judge, and he had demonstrated in the past bias against my clients and I, so the first thing I did was to bounce the judge. This caused quite the upheaval, and the plaintiff threatened to seek sanctions against me for filing what she claimed was a late challenge to the judge. Why is everyone threatening me with sanctions? Anyway, my client had brought a motion to quash, and that's not a general appearance. You have 15 days to paper a judge after your client appears in the action. A motion to quash is not an appearance, or at least that's my story and I'm sticking to it. So remember, there are six individual defendants in this case, not including Yelp and Ripoff Report. Prior to the time that I was retained, two had already filed anti-slap motions and both had been denied by the prior judge. So, no doubt, that is why plaintiff wanted the case to stay in that judge's court and why she threatened me with sanctions if I did not agree to leave it there. 
So the case was transferred to Judge Glass. At the time of the transfer, Yelp's anti-slap motion had already been granted, and there were two more anti-slap motions pending. I filed mine, and Ripoff Report filed its motion. Judge Glass decided to rule on all of them at the same time after all had been argued. He didn't change the dates of the hearings, but he took them under advisement and ruled on all four anti-slap motions in Moss. In drafting my motion, I decided to argue that Plaintiff was a limited public figure on the subject matter that was the topic of the allegedly defamatory comments. I looked at her website and and she went on and on about how she is frequently interviewed uh, by the media on child custody issues, sticking with our slightly altered scenario. I was the only one who made the limited public figure argument that I recall, and I was the last one to bring an anti-slap motion other than rip-off report, but that motion was based entirely on the CDA and and no limited public figure analysis since it would be irrelevant. So after the last anti-slap motion was argued, Judge Glass issued his minute order granting all four anti-slap motions. And here's what's interesting. As to each defendant, the judge found that at least one thing they'd published was arguably defamatory. But because he agreed with me that the attorney was a limited public figure, he was able to dispose of those arguably defamatory comments on the ground that plaintiff had not presented any evidence of malice. So by considering all the motions at the same time, they all received the benefit of my limited public figure argument. And I don't think it's something the judge would have come up on his own because it required evidence of her publications and such to show that she was a limited public figure. If I'd been in plaintiff's shoes, I'm sure I would have found that very frustrating. But from a case management standpoint, it made infinite sense because it rendered consistent rulings. So I'd say there are two takeaways from this case. When drafting an anti-slap motion, don't forget to consider whether the plaintiff might be a limited public figure. If you can persuade the court that the plaintiff is a limited public figure, it will make it significantly more difficult for the plaintiff to show a likelihood of success because he, she, or it now has the added burden of showing malice. And if you do find yourself in a circumstance where there might be multiple anti-slap motions, consider suggesting to the court that they all be considered at the same time or perhaps coordinate with co-defense counsel to bring the motions at the same time so you'll all have the benefit of one another's motions. The minute order in the case brought by the attorney contains some scathing language for the plaintiff. How would you like to be the one on the receiving end of this comment from the court? One of the defendants had called the plaintiff a liar and a crook. Those were the comments I thought might keep that particular defendant from prevailing on her anti-slap motion. I thought the court might find those to be defamatory and find that there was sufficient grounds to move forward with the case. But Judge Glass quoted from an unpublished appeal opinion from one of plaintiff's prior cases. The judge in that case, the prior case, and subsequently the court of appeal, had found some highly questionable behavior by the plaintiff, including allegedly obtaining a TRO with a declaration that turned out to contain some false statements and some allegedly illegal judge shopping by dismissing and refiling cases. And there was also an OSC that had been set in the case for the attorney to explain herself on those issues. So here's what Judge Glass found regarding the claim that one defendant had defamed plaintiff when she called her a liar and a crook. The judge said, Given that plaintiff was called to task by a trial judge for possible illegal conduct and misrepresentations, this court finds that plaintiff does not have a probability of succeeding on her defamation claim. Ouch. You want some aloe for that burn? You need a notebook because you've just been schooled. Finally, we're going to discuss an anti-slap motion I tossed in my file a few weeks back, but this is my first opportunity to talk about it. It's interesting more for the surrounding circumstances than any new legal concept. The weird thing is that this case 
was extensively reported, but nowhere have I been able to find the case name. But it's just a ruling by the trial court at this point, so it's not precedent in any event. So here's the case. It involves the Santa Monica Airport. One pro-airport group wanted to make sure the city council would not close the airport, so it circulated petitions and got Measure D placed on the ballot. That measure would have amended the Santa Monica City Charter to require voter approval in order to close the airport or to make certain other changes. On the other side, there was an anti-airport faction referred to as the Santa Monica 11 that didn't like Measure D and sued to keep it off the ballot, claiming that there had been massive cheating in obtaining the petition signatures. The Santa Monica 11 consisted mostly of homeowners and renters. They sued the Santa Monica city clerk, the city attorney, the city council, and threw in three individuals for good measure. Get it? Good measure? Measure D, good measure. Anyway, the defendants responded with an anti-slap motion. Well, the defendants responded with anti-slap motions, actually. The entire ballot process was obviously a protected activity, so that meets the first prong of the anti-slap analysis. Now it shifts to the plaintiffs to show the merits of the case. Your action claims massive cheating. Show us your evidence. Well, we don't really have any evidence. We thought the city attorney would investigate our claims of massive cheating. So they filed this action without any evidence of this alleged massive cheating. So the anti-slap statute worked perfectly. The defendants had properly and legally put a measure on the ballot, and the plaintiffs had tried to stall the process by filing legal action. Sounds like a slap to me. But here's where it gets fun. The plaintiffs cried the usual refrain that the anti-slap law was interfering with their ability to right an injustice. Well, that's the point. You claim there was an injustice, but you have no evidence to support it. At the anti-slap hearing, they read a letter to the judge explaining that the plaintiffs had never heard of the anti-slap statute, and therefore, it shouldn't be held against them. The mayor of Santa Monica wrote to the judge asking for mercy for the Santa Monica 11. And this being Santa Monica, the city itself waived the attorney's fees he was entitled to for the anti-slap motion. They didn't want to discourage citizen participation. But all told, the Santa Monica 11 was hit with attorney's fees of $31,000 for the anti-slap motions. They set up a webpage to seek donations from the community to pay those attorney's fees. So far, I just checked, they've raised $4,771 toward their goal of $31,000. And here's the irony. Measure D was defeated. The citizens of Santa Monica voted not to amend the city charter regarding the airport. It was, in fact, defeated by a big margin. So the Santa Monica 11 had tried to stop the process, but the process worked in favor of the anti-airport forces. So that's it for this episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. We covered a part of the Communications Decency Act of which you may have been unaware. We looked at one possible way to sue a website for content from a third party, and we discussed a couple of anti-slap motion strategies. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anyone. After I finished law school, I went to work at a large firm, Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. I wasn't happy practicing at a big firm, and one of the reasons was that there was zero consideration of whether we were representing the right side of a case. In fact, based on my observations, companies often hire a big firm specifically because they're on the wrong side of the case, and knowing they can't win the case on the merits, they hire a big firm to beat the other side down. 
That wasn't always the case, of course. Sometimes we were on the right side, but I hated spending any time on a case where our client had no valid case or defense, where our only goal was to beat the other side into submission. At Morrison Stone, we have three criteria for determining if we will take a case. Are we on the right side? Does the case have some intellectual interest? And does it pay? Now, criteria two and three are flexible. We'll take a case for little or no money if the case is extremely interesting, and we're not above taking a boring case if it's good economically. But criteria number one is engraved in granite. We won't take a case if we're not representing the right side that should win if justice is done. Now, it makes the practice of law far more satisfying if you're fighting for a cause and not just working as a partner in crime with with a party who is seeking to cheat the other side. So here I am in court arguing my anti-slap motion, and the attorney from Ripoff Report is also there arguing the company's motion as though she represented a real company with real business interests, talking about the consumer advocacy program as though it was something legitimate. It made me glad to be out on my own where I, I don't have to represent a defendant like that. I hope you have the ability to pick and choose your cases, and if you don't, get there. You'll really enjoy the practice of law if you're representing the right side. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk with you soon.